advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestions and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen grand is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen grand Dr. grand Dr. Doreen grand Dr. Doreen grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I feel like I'm on the wrong side of the bed. There we go. I'm on the wrong side. Uh, there we go. Good morning, everybody. I'm Shannon Penrod. Welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen with Dr. Doreen Grampichet. And look, we have Dr. Doreen Grampichet. Uh, so thrilled that she's here with us this morning. She's going to be with us live answering your questions starting right now. want to let all of you know we're thrilled to have all of you. The chat is open. Uh, if you're watching us on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter especially, you can be writing in. People have already I love now when we have that minute before people start writing in their questions. And so Michelle and Missy have already written in questions. It's great. We never get through all of the questions. We're sad about that, but we're, we're thrilled. My husband is sneaking me some tea. If I were mean, I would force him to stick his face on the camera. Thank you. Um, anyway, thank you. Thank you, sweetheart. And uh, <laughs> don't mind us. Uh, but um, anyway, if you guys want to be writing in, you can right now. Don't forget that the show also podcasts pretty much everywhere that there are free downloads. You can, for a podcast, you can find us, whether it's on iTunes or iHeartRadio or a million other places, because Traven is so good. He's showing you on the screen there. I can't even remember all the places that we are anymore, but you can find us along with a backlog of uh, videos that we've been doing. Do you realize Dr. Grampy Shea that in one week, we're celebrating 11, 11 years on the air. That's wow. That's, that's amazing, Shannon. Wow. It's absolutely amazing. I'm and so it's also amazing. It's also amazing that Dr. Grampuche doesn't look a day older while I have turned into uh, an you Asian. You look gorgeous. You look gorgeous. I, the hair has gone gray and everything else has gone out the window. But, you know, 11 years later, Dr. Grampuche, there is a painting aging under a bed somewhere. Hey, while we're talking about her, if you guys don't know who she is, you should definitely be following her on TikTok, where she's asked Dr. Doreen on TikTok, and you should be checking out the playlist. Dr. Grampuche is a licensed clinical psychologist who's been working in this field for 40 some odd years, which is crazy. Yes, I said four zero odd years, more than 40 years. She is a brilliant mind. I believe the preeminent expert in autism in all time. And uh, she's been working with individuals as young as babies, up through senior citizens, along with their families, always shows compassion and empathy for the individual, which we cannot celebrate enough. Um, thank you, Dr. Grampuche, for being here. She donates this time every week to answer your questions. Uh, I do want to say that there is no expert in this field or any other field who could give individual specific advice in this format simply because she does not have eyes on the individual. So she's going to give you uh, information that as, is of a general nature, be as specific as possible when you're writing in your questions so that, and she may have questions for you. So ask your question and then stay tuned, but be excited to be here because she's brilliant and fabulous and wonderful. Have I left anything out, Dr. Grant? You're, you're always too, way, way, way too kind to me. But thank you so much, Shannon. I appreciate it very much. And good morning, everyone. And it's lovely to be here. And Shannon, I love you. You have no idea how excited I am on Tuesday mornings to do this with you because it's so much fun doing this. In fact, yesterday, if I may, for one second, I was reading a few of the questions that came in that we didn't have a chance to answer because I'm trying to answer those on TikTok. But it just broke my heart, honestly. And, and you know, my son, he's been involved with you and has done a lot of different types of creative work together with you. But we should make it clear, uh, involved with me in projects. In projects, yeah. <laughs> don't don't have me yes. in that cradle. Yeah, my son is a screenwriter, and, and uh, Shannon, of course, as many of you know, has this other unbelievable creative side. And so my son, my two daughter, daughters as well, have learned a lot from Shannon. 
But um, yesterday he was passing by and he just heard heard me re- going like, oh, oh my God. And I was just like, and I was reading a couple of emails and I just started to read a few more. And honestly, I, I, I cannot, I, I just, I was, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was sitting here and I was thinking, how can we help these parents? Forget about like, is one thing I've dedicated my whole life to trying to help the children and to uh, treat the children, right? And to teach everyone ABA and all that sort of stuff. And I'm, I just sometimes it's not really about learning what to do as much as it is about just having someone that you can vent to and having someone that can just you know put their arms around you and say it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to make it through this. And, uh, you know, as you know, Shannon, I've always said the the thing that pulled me into this field all the way back 1978 was the parents, was moms who would come into my office at UCLA and would sit down and would just tell me, just pour out their hearts. And I, that day, you know, at that time, I, I just realized there's no way I can walk away from it. How can I walk away from this and do anything else? And, and I felt the same draw yesterday when I was reading these emails. And I wanted to talk to you about it, which, you know, after the show, of course, we'll have some time. And, and just thinking, like, we need to do something just for the parents who are struggling. And there are so many parents where the mom or dad feels completely alone and just overwhelmed by the the tough side of autism let's put it that way and so i was very excited this morning to come in and help and answer some questions but we'd lo- i'd love to hear from some of the parents as well you know how can we help more when you're struggling i love that I do want to say that Missy has already written in and said, I love Dr. Dor- I love Dr. Doreen's TikTok and we well, love what you're you. doing over there because it's absolutely amazing. A lot of people are writing in. Let me say hi to some people to start. Hi to Michelle, Missy, of course, Aisha, Parker, Amanda, 619 Poker King. Glad that you're here. Uh, Gareth is here with us. Chelsea is here with us. Sue is here with us. So thrilled that everybody is here this morning. I think I'm. I think I'm going to jump in when with Gareth, Gareth's question. Even though you said you were asking about parents, we're going to get to parents. But Gareth had written in and said, "I want to ask this question. Please, can the group tell me?" And my my chat just jumped. Uh, please, can the group tell me after you have had a diagnosis? Why have I been told by family, friends, and partners you're normal? you don't have autism. And he says that this is really hurting me. So maybe Dr. Grampy-Shay, you, cause you've worked yeah. with a lot of families and seen this kind of thing. Maybe you can shed a little light. And then if others want to jump in, Gareth is uh, writing on Facebook. Um, if you're on Facebook and want to tell Gareth your thoughts on it, um, if you're watching at home, you can absolutely um, give him some support there as well. But Dr. Grampy-Shay. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, I start by saying, you know, have you thought about why it's hurting you? Because really, it doesn't matter what other people think. It never should really matter to the point where it hurts you so much. Um, So I think the focus should be more on what is it about that that is hurting you? I mean, I have a lot of adults who I've seen who um, some do fit the criteria and it's a relief for them to know that they are part of a a, a bigger group. It's a relief for them to know why certain things are difficult for them or have always been difficult for them. And then there are others who really don't fit the diagnostic criteria of autism, but uh, fit other diagnoses, for instance, uh, social anxiety disorder, uh, or depression even, or a variety of other things. So what is it that is hurting you? If you believe that the diagnosis that you received was accurate, then that's all that matters. 
and you know let's go with that and and believe in that a lot of lay people have a lot of opinions but unless you have uh you know uh, training in diagnosis it doesn't really matter and perhaps you can if you feel that autism really is uh the appropriate diagnosis for you um what i would do is try to educate those people about the various symptoms of autism that you feel you have. Um, and a lot of times people don't know enough about autism and they think, oh, it's got to be, uh, and, you know, one way or another. It has to be very severe or it has to be, you know, a per, you know, you have to have savant skills or people have all kinds of ideas about what autism is. Take those parts of the diagnosis that you feel really describe who you are and tell them. So for example, uh, you know, with autism, uh, it is really hard for a lot of people to take someone else's perspective. Maybe you can tell them that, that you struggle with that, or that you struggle with abstract communication, or that you struggle with whatever symptom of autism it is that, that you feel helps define you. But again, you know, my, my bigger words of advice, I guess, are don't care. Try to not care. Try to just, uh, everybody has to live their own lives, you know, and if we cared about everybody else's opinion, we'd be lost. <laughs> we'd never move forward. So, you know, that's, that's really what I would suggest. I what love that. Uh, no, I, you know, I have, uh, Somebody had said the phrase to me many years ago, other people's opinions of me is none of my business. Exactly. And, and I, boy, I really took that on. And, and, and then when I really truly had to learn it was when my son was diagnosed with autism. And it's something that I say often, other people's opinions of my parenting is none of my business because I would care deeply. And, and, and when you start doing the math and draw it out on, on the chalkboard about, you know, is, is, does this person really understand what I'm going through? And so if the answer is no, then how would I allow their judgment of what I'm doing really matter to me? Yeah. It's hard. It's really yeah. hard um, because you have to separate yourself from it that way and realize that whatever they're thinking has more to do with them than it has to do with you. There was a, a dear friend of mine that just would not accept that my son had gotten a diagnosis of autism and would say to me all the time, no, he, what do you, you know, it's, and then he would fill in the blank of why I, I was like, well, why have multiple doctors said this? And he would say things that were really upsetting. Like you just wanted attention. You just you, like, <laughs> really, yeah. and it didn't work for me. And I ignored it for a long time. And then I found myself wanting to be around him less and less, you know, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because and, I don't really want to yeah. hear that. Melissa, <laughs> Melissa wrote in replying to Gareth and said, people don't see all of the things that you're struggling with inside, especially if you're good at masking. And that's a beautiful comment. And you're absolutely right, Melissa. Nobody knows what we go through. Only we know. And, you know, hopefully you had a, yeah, good diagnostician. And that's all you need, really. There we go. There we go. Okay. Uh, there's so many comments coming in. It's like, you know, pick, it's like Sophie's choice here. I want, I want to answer everybody's questions. I do have to start with something quick though, that somebody wrote in in the night and uh, they were on our website and said, is this information free? And I'm so happy to report that. Yes, all the information that we provide here is free, which is really, uh, I'm very, very proud of. Uh, Missy wants to know, hi, Dr. Doreen, what services are out there when your child has graduated from ABA, is getting bigger, 12 years old, and still displays aggressive behaviors? How do we keep him and everyone else safe? I love that question, Missy, sending you a hug. Yeah, so many, so many ways a hug. And what a great question, Missy, because, you know, <clears throat> what you do, you can do two things. One is you can learn the different ways to manage the aggression. We could talk about it a little bit today. Or you can go back in and get ABA. I mean, let's let's be very clear. ABA, you know, um, if when you need help with a challenging behavior, ABA is the way to go. 
So it's not, ABA is not necessarily just for very young children who need a comprehensive kind of teaching program. ABA is for when you have aggressive behavior. That is a, a, an exact reason why you would need ABA. Because the way to, and, and you will get uh, insurance coverage for it no matter where you are, and you will get an intervention. It might not be comprehensive. It might not be, you know, hundreds of hours over a long period of time, but it will be an intervention that is very helpful. And you will get board certified people coming into your house and teaching you how to manage the aggression. Now, I will tell you some of the stuff about aggression and um, and and how to manage it, but it is difficult, especially when your child is 12. And this is also one of the things that I was reading this weekend that kind of brought tears to my eyes was that a lot of parents deal with aggression and nobody knows. We don't talk about the aggression from our kids because we're kind of afraid to talk about it. We're afraid to jeopardize their futures or their placement. Or, and we're afraid of people judging us and thinking this must be a bad parent who has an aggressive child. And it's none of those. It has absolutely nothing to do with that at all. All it is, is that your child has learned that aggression is a functional form of communicating whatever it is he wants. You know, it's funny. Um, I don't know how many of you guys saw the Oscars the other day with, with Will Smith getting very upset and going over and hitting Chris Rock in the face, and that's aggression, right? That's assault. And somewhere, uh, you know, Will would have learned that a certain level of frustration is sufficient to justify aggression. And, uh, you know, in my life, in my society, in my environment, it's not. There is no level of frustration that justifies aggression, right? There's just no level of frustration that allows that. Our kids learn that if they are very frustrated, if they aggress, people will try to figure out what they want and will give it to them. Now, what they want is usually either, I don't, they're trying to communicate, I don't wanna do this, leave me alone or else I'm gonna hit. Or they communicate, I want to go outside and no one's letting me go. I'm going to hit. Or I want an object. Or I just want your attention. Or it could be a variety of things. Like one of the things I was reading this weekend had to do with a parent where the child was, would just get frustrated about things in life. Like it's snowing outside, so I can't go outside and play with the dog. And then would aggress, right? And so for the child, it has become a form of communication. I, I'm going to say this, and this is super important. No challenging behavior, none. Aggression, tantrums, hitting, biting, kicking, spitting, running away. None of these are a symptom of autism. None of them. Nowhere have they ever been written as a symptom. When we diagnose, we do not look at those because they're not considered a symptom of autism. What they are is just a form of communication that the child has learned. Now, think about yourself. If you were trying to communicate with people and either you didn't understand their language or they didn't understand you, you'd get frustrated, right? And you would hit, pinch, pull, whatever it is, you'd aggress. And that's kind of a natural thing that happens. What we need to do is to teach our kids aggression doesn't work, language does work, or some sort of communication it could also be non-vocal communication. And that's really the difference. And the way we do that in ABA is that when the child, first of all, with aggression, you need to block it because people can get hurt, right? So as soon as the individual is about to aggress, he needs to be stopped physically, and then given the words to ask for what it is that he wants. And that's where it becomes super important to have a professional because a BCBA will come in and identify what it is he's trying to communicate. And that's what we call the functional behavior assessment. So it's kind of like a, an aggressive act occurs. Sometimes it's really hard in the middle of that to figure out what was he trying to go? Why did he do that? Why? What was the why? 
And the why is what we call in behavioral language, the function. And there are ways that we figure out, oh, he did this because what he wanted was this, right? And, and you have to figure that out because if you don't know the function, if you don't know the reason for a behavior, you're not gonna be able to change it successfully. It's not about punishing a behavior. It's about replacing the behavior with a more fun, adaptive form of communication that is easier, okay? Because aggressing is not easy. Like the person who's aggressing also wears themselves out. They like having a tantrum. It's very exhausting. So you need to figure out, okay, he's about to aggress for this reason. Before he aggresses, I'm going to have him just do an easy thing, like ask for it or ask for a timeout or say, I want this object, whatever the reason is, right? Give him an easier way of asking for that so that his frustration dissipates and he doesn't get aggressive. Now, once it, you know, when you're dealing with a 12-year-old or older and there's aggression involved, I will always recommend that you get a BCBA back in. And you can, you know, you all, that's all you need uh, is you have the diagnosis. You can certainly go in and ask your healthcare carrier for a short-term intervention that, where they will send in a BCBA to give you advice and guidance like I just did. Amazing. Can I give a really short example of why you have to know what the function is? Because I think a lot of times we just don't get this. When my son was in third grade, there was a little boy in his classroom that at a certain time every day, this kid would get up, run for the door, and he would run out the door and across the field. Pretty yeah. much the same time every day. And I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to be impolite and say that there was a person on the staff who was not, not very let's say she was ignorant to what we're talking about here. And yeah. so, and she was in charge. And so what she would do, the teacher would call and say, he's run again. She would send somebody out to get him, bring her to his, to her office. And then she would sit, have him sit. She had these beautiful club chairs in her office. She would put the child in this very comfy chair in That's her what office. That's what right? he wanted. <laughs> and, and she would hand him a pencil and the two of them would sit there and, and the pencil would have a, an eraser on it and they would sit there and she would do it with him and they would bounce pencils on their erasers for 20 minutes. Oh, and, wow. and her theory was, we just have to make it so boring for him that he'll want to go back to the classroom. And I, every day I would come in to volunteer at a certain time and I would walk by and there the kid would happily be sitting in the club chair, bouncing the pencil yeah. with this person. And, yeah. and I, I would say to the teacher, how's that working for everybody? Because it's yeah. working really well for him. Because Honestly. he didn't think about what it was that that kid wanted. Yeah. And what he wanted was a break. And mm -hmm. she would give it to him, which meant that he would continue doing it every day. If she That's had right. stopped and considered that maybe we teach him how to ask a break and give him a break where we're teaching the lesson while he's doing something physical, that kid could have stayed in education and, and better use the resources. But she didn't really know what it was he wanted, assumed, and then would do this thing and was un entrenched in her, um, you know, intervention, too entrenched to see that it wasn't working. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, it's a really, really, really great point, Shannon. One of the thing, one of the ways that we figure out a function is to see what's not working, which is really interesting, right? When you see that, for instance, you know he aggresses and you give him an object, but he still aggresses, you you would ask yourself, maybe he's aggressing for some other reason. But if you give him an object and he calms down, then you know, oh, that's what he's trying to get, right? So aggression, so the, the things that don't work also give us a cue as to what it is the child is actually trying to communicate. And it's hard. It's not easy. But I so appreciate you saying that you need to work with an expert. I want to say, too, we've talked about this a little bit before on the show, that when you are a parent who's getting hit it is very easy to get upside down. And I suffered from yeah. something that I now talk about with parents and have heard from parents. And it's very scary 
because all the things that Dr. Grampiche was saying, we start to hide it because we don't want people to judge us. We don't want them to judge our child. We don't want our child to be seen as a monster and lose out on opportunities or play dates or things like that. But then what ends up happening, honestly, is, and I, I, I heard it in my own brain and I hear it in other parents' brain, we start to say, maybe I deserve it. And that is when you know that you are upside down. And I, I, I said it myself and I've heard it from so many moms, especially that, that we, we justify it and say, cause it's like your brain has to come up with a way that it's yeah. not your child's yeah. fault. And so you yeah. say, I deserve it. I deserve yeah. to be hit because it must be something I'm doing wrong. Or you fill in the blank with what you think it is that you're doing wrong. That is upside oh, down yeah. thinking. Or you even, or you even like a mom that I was reading yesterday had written, maybe it's karma, and exactly. it's something I did in the past. It, this has the only relationship the hard part of autism has with you, I think, is that you are, you know, a strong enough soul that you've been given this, uh, this uh, task, I guess. You've been entrusted with this journey, with this task, because, uh, you know, you can handle it. It has nothing to do with karma. and It has nothing to do with anything you have done. I've had so many parents come to me and say, you know, was it because when he or she was younger, I picked him up and shook him because I was angry? You know, like there's so many things that we go back to. And it just isn't, and it's not helpful, and and you just need to kind of move forward and and you know just not blame yourself ever. For and if you're in that mode, if you're thinking that way at all, it's time to acknowledge it. I felt that way. I felt that way. I do not feel that way now. If you're feeling that way, it's time time to get help. Uh, you need some support with that to help you to to get to another place, a better place in this hunt. All right, I'm going to move on to Sue. She says, hi, Dr. Green. My son attends center-based ABA. It's been a year he has started, but we still he still has got problems with stimming and a lack of independent play. I can't control his stimming. There is an obsession with fans. Yeah. We don't know how old this child is. Sue, if you're there, if you can tell us how old the child is. Yeah, and um, there's... there. There, I have just have so much to say to Sue here. I don't know how to, how to contain it in, in a small moment of time. So, um, you know, there's there's a, and it would be helpful to know because if he if he is younger, then there's kind of a uh, there's a plan. You know, there's a there's a curriculum and there's a series of things four. That go through. He's four. Okay. So, and that is in the younger category. That means that he should be going through a series of lessons. I'm going to talk about that in a, right now. Uh, it, it doesn't jump around like this. It's not kind of like, oh, we're dealing with his stimming and his independent play. That's kind of not how it goes. So let me talk about how an overall program works. So self-stimulatory behavior, and in his case, it sounds like it's an obsession with fans. So we would classify this as a visual self-stimulatory behavior. And let me just start out by saying we know very little about visual, about any kind of self-stimulatory behavior. In the behavioral world, uh, the you know people believe that it is somehow stimulatory, somehow intrinsically rewarding to uh, look at circular things like fans. Uh, or to line your objects up, or to do this, you know, that's a visual self-stimulatory type of behavior as well. Um, in the medical field, it is more believed that these self-stimulatory behaviors are calming in some way or another, and it could very well be. We don't know about what the need is for these visual self-stimulatory behaviors. I think in terms of visual stuff, I learned the most from Temple Grandin, who talks about the fact that it is very difficult to see things in a three-dimensional uh, kind of uh, way. So you tend to look at them in different ways and that gives you 
more like pictures of things that are happening in your environment. Who knows? Who, who knows at this point what stimulation the child is getting out of looking at fans? We really just don't know enough. The way that we deal with it behaviorally is that we try to block it and replace it with, uh, you know, eye contact and various other forms of appropriate eye activity. Now, I would also suggest, uh, still as a behaviorist, I will tell you that there's this thing called the pre-MAC principle, which allows you to use behaviors that are very, uh, I guess, satisfying or high uh, rate, high rate behaviors. So a behavior that occurs very frequently to use it as a reward. Uh, for other behaviors that are not occurring as, as high rate. So for instance, in, in your child's case, they should be uh, on a schedule allowing him to look at a fan for a couple of minutes as a reward for having done something else. And that something else could be anything. It could be, um, you know, vocalizing that he wants to look at a fan. It could be learning his lessons. It could be having a social conversation with another person. It depends on your child's actual abilities and where they are in the overall program. But a lesson, uh, and then you can reward it with a minute of looking at a fan. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. That is a completely doable thing. Now, moving on to the concept of independent play, independent play is a very, very advanced uh, uh, play uh, modality. And I'm not sure your child at four is quite there yet. It depends on how much therapy he's already had. Um, and, you know, if he's four years old and he started when he was, let's say, three, and just looking at the spelling, it looks like you're in either London, New Zealand, Australia, you're in a English, British uh, type of country. So I don't know really if you're getting intensive ABA. If, you, if your son has received intensive ABA, um, or even should be, I mean, should be at the age of four, right? Then you have a full program, and the full program works on all of the following areas. Language, social skills, play skills, as you mentioned, motor skills, adaptive skills, um, and let's see what else maybe early phases of cognitive skills. Um, and so there's a lot of different areas at four. And we tackle a little bit of each one. Personally, at four, my focus would be on the language curriculum. And it would be a lot of trying to teach the child abstract ways of communicating. I'd also be working on play, but most likely I'd be teaching uh, play skills as opposed to independent play. So for instance, I'd be teaching the child things like constructive play, building things if he's four years old, playing appropriately with pretend play, putting little toys inside cars, etc., and pretending various things. There's, there's earlier aspects of play that normally develop at two and three, and I don't know if your child has done those. But we try to fill in the gaps you don't jump and teach something that's like a four-year or five-year skill. You teach all the two-year, three-year, everything before that because you want the child to kind of catch up and not be lacking in any area. So that's what I would, I would go back to your center and I'd say, hey, like, what are we doing for the self-stimulatory activity and what are we doing for the play activity? All that said... There is a particular game uh, or lesson that we call uh, PlayStations that is for independent play. So we set up stations and each station, for instance, could be like station one. These are activities that usually have their own completion, like a puzzle or a, you know, um, I don't know, something where you have to put the blocks on top of each other to complete it or various types of stations and of different toys. And, and I would start out very small. I would start out with one, and then I would make it two stations and so on. And uh, the, basically the child is taught to go to station one. There's a paper you put like, or some sign there that says, 
Okay, like if it depends on the child's abilities again. Some children can visually read, other children uh, can't read at all or can't recognize icons, in which case all you really do is you teach the child to, let's say, turn over an egg timer or set a timer. And it's for, uh, you know, 10 seconds or 30 seconds, something very small and manageable. And the child will play with that and then the parents will come and reward them. And then gradually you make it two stations. Now the child will play with this for 30 seconds or a minute. We'll go over to the other place and play with the second object for a minute. Then the parents will come and reward them. And so you do this and you increase the time in each station and you increase the stations so that eventually your child can actually keep themselves engaged for, let's say, 15 to 20 minutes rotating because we don't want kids doing the same activity for half an hour. Um, and so that's how you teach independent play. But it is very important before you do that for the child to have the capability of playing at each station. So they need to know a lot of different types of just play and, you know, building blocks and like activities with toys and that sort of thing. Long, long answer. You're on mute. Sorry, there's so many more things that we could say too. I just want to say, Sue, I loved everything that Dr. Grampiche said. And I just want to hug you because I remember when my son was four and I really wanted him to be showing evidence that everything was coming together. And I was very impatient for that. And I just want to tell you that when my son was four, he was still engaged in a lot of stimming and vocal stereotypy. And he was still was not able to play on his own. And I, I just want to put it into your backpack that at least evidence of one um, individual that my son is 18 years old and almost never, I engage in more vocal stereotypy than he does. Let's say that, right? And he completely can go and entertain himself for hours on end. So I, I want to tell you that at four, that was my worry too. And, you know, we're, we're totally fine there. Everybody's different. Um, but I love that you wrote in and said to Dr. Grampiche that you're doing 34 hours a week of ABA. Very I, good. I think that's amazing. And very, very Because that's really hard right now to do, but I think that's the single best thing um, that you've got going for you is, is that you're, you're, you're all in and obviously you're a good parent. So. Um, Amanda has written in and said that she's thinking about doing a respite exchange program for single parents because it is so hard when you can't get or qualify for respite. And she says, I have three special needs kids um, and a new new to the state of Texas with zero help. And Amanda, I just want to say that um, in Colorado, they, they, they've been doing a program where it's Medicaid buy-in, where you mm -hmm. can buy in for a very low amount and have your children get crazy good coverage. And Texas has been teetering on this for um, and saying that they might go for it. And if you want some help to try and apply, I can't guarantee you that it's going to work. You'd be a test case, but I think you'd be a good test case. So if you're at all interested in that, reach out to me. Um, here's it's also a really good idea. I think what Amanda is saying, I mean, and also I, I, had, I had another parent reach out. I'm talking to them, I think next week, and they've developed a software for setting up play dates with other kids who are, and we've always talked about this, right, Shannon, for years and years. But I think it's, you know, this is also a pretty good idea is like um, getting, having access to other parents and saying to those parents, hey, can we like help each other out? Trade. Like that, yeah, trade. And also, I mean, you know, of course, that's one thing. The other thing is that just having that support system around you, I think is extremely helpful and being part of that community that understands what you're going through. I think it's really important. Absolutely. Kirsten says, I have a question concerning couples on the spectrum. If one individual recognizes that they're on the spectrum and is figuring out their own triggers and quirks, but the mm -hmm. other individual does not acknowledge this, um, this is, uh, excuse me, my thing is jumping around this sudden re realization and continues to treat and converse with the other individual as if there is no processing issue when it comes to emotions, um, things like tone, not hearing exactly what the other person is saying or internalizing. Um, she goes on to describe many different symptoms of things that are happening, that there's imposter syndrome, 
or the individual going catatonic during high pressure debates, that it's becoming a severe issue. What kind of advice do you have? Because we hear this a lot, that one person has the revelation, oh, part of the reason why I'm having problems in the relationship is that I've got these other things. They start seeking a diagnosis, but the other partner goes, no, <laughs> and, just, yeah. and, and, and they just revert back to how things work. It can become very difficult. What, what do you recommend? Yeah, so it's so funny though, um, Amanda, that you said this because you know if you think this one about is Kirsten. This one oh, is sorry, Kirsten. Yeah, and and by the way, um, Traven, I just lost my entire chat, so not sure what I can do about that. But um, when when that happens, it's funny because when I was first hearing you say that, Shannon, I was like. Okay, I mean, this pretty much happens in almost all relationships, right? So, and it's wonderful that at least, you know, if both couples are on the spectrum here and one has recognized that this has to do with the autism that we both have, right? Because in other relationships, nobody can figure out. There's always one person that is like more uh, aware and open and listening to the other and the other partner is like, what did I do? Like, what's going on here? I don't really know what I did wrong or what's going on. So what you're explaining here, Kirsten, is a very common thing in relationships. It isn't just about autism. It's about relationships. And when we have relationships, it becomes super important to explain to the other person those things they don't see. And it's sometimes hard. We get frustrated because why can't they say this? I don't understand. This person has been my partner for 10 years. Why don't they know this is what I need? They don't. It's just that simple. And before you get frustrated, it becomes super important to sit them down and just say, hey, this is difficult for me. You do not understand that this causes me anxiety. I need you to please understand. And this is my cue. When I'm about to do this, it's because I feel anxious. When, you know, this type of tone scares me or whatever it is, you've gotten really, really close to identifying those things. And that is huge because like I'm telling you, most neurotypical couples don't recognize those things as being the issue. So what you've done is you started to identify the issues this is fabulous. Just tell the other person, these are my triggers. These are the things that cause me to have issues and I would really like you to pay attention to them. That's all, that's all it is. And, and you know, Shannon, I'm sure you do, I do. I, I get, I for no reason at all, I get upset with my spouse because he can't read my mind you know, or because he doesn't really, he's not fantastic at reading my cues. So it, it just, that's, that's kind of my take on it. And, and can I just say that one of the things that I've learned, uh, cause we're going to be married 20 years this summer. Wow. Uh, what, one of the things that I've learned is that when you're having a conversation, sometimes there's so many things going on and is trying to listen, but they're also thinking about respond. So my hope is that if I write him a letter, that that is me saying, you better pay attention. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is So I write the letter. And the nice thing about the letter is I get to think about what I want to say. I don't have to deal with his response. Um, he doesn't have to be thinking about what he's. So I put it, I, I write him a letter. I put it on the pillow and I, maybe it takes me 20 tries, but I write the letter and I say, here's what's really important to me. Here's, awesome. here's how this makes me feel. Here's what I need from you to acknowledge this and tell me that how, how we're going to work on it or whatever. That's what I do. A letter. Yeah. And yeah. over the years, he's learned if I'm talking about something, I'm a little irked about it. But if I write a letter, it's serious business time. Um, so there you go. Uh, Shalish wants to know, hi, Do hi, Doreen. My son is four years old. He has phases of six to seven uncontrollable laughter episodes every day. They asked, is it sugar or something else? I asked them uh, earlier. I said, talk about the diet a little bit. How much sugar? How many carbs? And her response was that they took sugar out of his diet about a year ago because they saw a correlation with sugar. 
although they're not sure that he's not getting sugary snacks at school. Um, and I asked about carbs and she says, um, not, uh, he says he eats, she says he eats fruits like oranges, strawberries, but less carbs, question mark. So yeah. there we are. We're going to start to talk about diet. You know what, what that's going to be like. Yeah, I'm going to try to contain it here. <laughs> my, biggest, uh, my, big, my initial reaction as soon as I hear uncontrollable laughter is not sugar, it's yeast. That's my first go-to um, because I've seen that, because I've seen it actually. And um, so yeast, of course, you know, the whole, I'm not going to talk for an hour about the fact that a lot of our kids struggle with yeast. But this has to do with early, usually it has to do with early uh, uh, exposure to antibiotics or it could be a variety of other things. But our children lose the healthy gut bacteria that prevents them from growing yeast and therefore they start to experience candida. Um, and candidiasis or candida um, can have a lot of different kinds of effects on behavior. Uh, so one of the things is that there's two sides to it. One is sometimes when your child has high levels of yeast, and this can be texted for, but uh, sometimes when that happens, uh, your child will seem very kind of zoned out or tuned out, not involved, not able to engage, not able to pay attention. And what's even more important and interesting is that when you, if you connect with a physician and the physician gives you antifungal medications for the yeast, and there's a variety of them, uh, Nizoral, Diflucan, et cetera. These are um, you know, medication that the child takes orally. And when you do that, there's this phase that we call yeast die-off and that is a lot of giggling for no reason. So, and it doesn't have to necessarily be even medication. Sometimes the gut is forming its own bacteria and there's a yeast die-off reaction. So you, I would really, really go see a physician and say, I think my child has yeast. I think it's a candida. Can you do testing, blood tests to determine whether or not that is correct and can we treat it? And then you have to be very patient because the treatment takes a little bit of time. Yeast is difficult and, um, you know, you have to go dietary as well as medication in order to kind of eliminate it because a lot of dietary, a lot of things in our diet feed yeast. So anything with gluten is going to increase yeast because that's the way it is. You leave bread out, it will form fungus very quickly. Um, anything with sugar will feed yeast. And so there are specific diets that will help you reduce the yeast faster. But that's kind of where I turn to. That's my first go-to or rule out. Kind of I want to deal with make sure there's no yeast issues. Then I can look at other aspects of the diet. There you go. I love that. Uh, Ron Dunia has asked a question and they, they addressed it to me, but I think it's, I, I think we should let you have your first crack at it. And then of course I, oh, I always have an opinion. Uh, but they said, hi, Shannon, what do you think is more helpful ABA or sunrise? And they qualified that and said, especially to deal with an aggressive child. So you go first, Dr. Grampuche. Okay. So, I mean, my simple answer to that is ABA is going to be more effective. And I'm not even, I'm not, there's no question in my mind. I'm not saying that as a board certified behavior analyst or as someone who has like done 40 years of ABA. ABA is going to be more effective because the Sunrise program is not one that will intrude upon and try to uh, um, assertively change behavior. Uh, you know, ABA is. The Sunrise program is much more, uh, allows the child to have their own kind of interactions with society. Uh, ABA will not allow aggression and will replace it with some other form of better communication. So, so I would highly recommend that. And my two cents, because you asked for it, um, my college roommate 
Uh, she got married much younger than I did and had two sons and her second son was diagnosed on the spectrum and had some pretty intense challenges. And at that time, ABA was not available everywhere. And she looked at what could she possibly do? She found the Sunrise program. I have never seen a person work harder than she did. She went and paid so much money to get trained for herself, to get her family trained. She arranged volunteers in her community to come and be on a schedule to work with her child. She trained all of them. She was amazing. And I looked at that and I thought, I could never do that. I could never do what she did. And her son is a beautiful human being who is in his late 20s now, who, you know, still has amazing challenges, will never live independently. Um, and, and she tells me, I, I think that he is an amazing human being, but she comes and sees my child and she puts her head down on the table and she weeps and says, if I had had what you had had, where would my child be? And, and, and that breaks my heart every single time. This is the only experience I have with Sunrise um, personally, you know, because I've seen her and, and look, you know, I mean, she loved it and, but where her son is and what she sees. And she's been in my home many times to see the ABA and see what happened with Jem. And she says, this is amazing. If I had it to do over again, I wish I could do what you did. And, and to me, hero, she went for her kid, but she, that's, if she were here, she would tell you to run towards the ABA. I know that. So that's my two cents on that. Aren't you sorry you asked? <laughs> so, uh, I, I want to get to a question um, that was, a, a lot of times we've had these questions come in from siblings. Do we have enough time? We do. Okay. <clears throat> in the night. A sibling wrote in who's 19 years old. She's a female. She had, and she says, apologies, there's a little TMI here, but her twin brother is on the spectrum and he's nonverbal. She's recently moved back home to help her mother because things have gotten a little bit bad. He was fully potty trained. And then at 16, uh, he's, and he's 19 now. So I'm thinking somewhere right around the start of the pandemic actually is the timeline. Um, he began, uh, pooping in different places around the house. She says, uh, you know, what you need to know is that he used to love the sound of flushing and the coldness of the toilet seat. So, um, he would often go in and sit on the toilet seat fully clothed because he enjoyed it so much. And he would sit there and play his games. But he started pooping on the floor uh, in the bathroom instead of the toilet. And initially they thought it was because he was constipated and struggling to go to the bathroom instead of the, instead of the toilet. Um, but now it's, it's taken on a whole new thing and he is now pooping in different places of the house. And now it has gone to peeing in different levels uh, of the house. It's, uh, he's also stopped wiping himself um, and that any attempt to you know, propel him towards the toilet is met with a complete and total meltdown, even to the, the extent of self-harming. So, um, you know, she said recently her mother had friends over and they thought that they had it under control. And he slipped down to the kitchen and left a present on the kitchen floor that was found by one of the guests. And, and she said, please, any help would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, this is so hard. This is one of the reasons that I really just encourage parents to do as much as they possibly can when the children are younger and smaller, because it is so, so, so difficult to change behavior when someone is 19 and when a behavior becomes kind of embedded, you know, and it becomes a habit. So I really in this kind of a severe situation, I would recommend getting ABCBA. You should be, your health insurance will cover that. You really should be getting help from a board certified behavior analyst who can come into the house and set up a behavior intervention plan for this particular thing. This is a very, very big deal and it can, you know, make life a lot easier, a lot harder, depending on how it goes. Um, I, if, if he still likes the flushing and the cold toilet, 
That's great because those things could be used as reinforcers. There are a lot of other ways that you can also make the toilet his favorite place to go because right now it sounds like you can't usher him in there. But you could put a TV in there, you could put a computer in there, and only in there. In other words, he shouldn't have access to those items outside of the toilet. Make the toilet the most attractive place for now. Um, he clearly is getting attention from voiding in places where he is not allowed to void, right? So somebody comes over, I am not, I don't know, this is why you need a BCBA there. I don't know exactly how it's dealt with, but I assume someone gets mad at him, uh, maybe raises their voice, uh, and then cleans the thing up. I don't know, but this, you know, it, it is definitely something where he is now getting the attention of maybe your mom or whoever it is, and this is just one way that he has control over getting her attention. Um, it could get worse, believe it or not, because he could start smearing the feces over the walls and such, but that becomes something that sometimes uh, our adults also enjoy doing from a sensory perspective. But um, get a behaviorist, it is not a major deal. It's not the hardest thing. It's, in fact, it can be quite pleasant, and they can teach him that you only, it's kind of like a shorter version of the training, but it's a retraining, which makes it clear to him that there will be lots of rewards if you void in the toilet. And also there's this thing in ABA we don't often talk about, but it is a process of overcorrection. Well, he is the one that cleans the mess if he makes a mess. So there's a difference where he has to go and clean the, the uh, you know, what he has voided on the kitchen floor or anywhere else in the house. Um, but when he goes to the toilet and goes on the toilet, he gets a massive amount of reward. For instance, he gets to play half an hour on the computer that remains in the toilet. So in other words, rewards that are not otherwise available and are meaningful to him are attached to going and voiding in the toilet itself. And then uh, the other stuff is actually just not the, you know, don't talk about it, don't yell at him, anything like that, just model through so that he needs to clean it up and then you move on. But it's very, very hard. And I really, there could be a million other things going on. I am not there. So I can't see exactly what function is maintaining this behavior. Shannon had a good point. It's also kind of coincides with COVID. So it's possible that, you know, sometimes our kids have no other way of expressing their anxieties and frustrations and such. And so they start doing these types of challenging behaviors. I really do recommend that you get a BCBA in there, which all you have to do is call your health insurance and ask for a behavior analyst to come in and do a functional behavior assessment so you know exactly what to do. Wonderful. Yeah, I've heard you and other experts talk before about when potty training is very solid and there is a sudden change that you really got to look at what, what else changed and that sometimes there's some sort of trauma. In, and I think we need to be careful about like, you know, trauma could be you had a nightmare and, and now it's bothering you, but something changed. Yeah, constipation could be the trauma. Yeah, I mean, some, some, yeah, something changed. Yeah, and and that it's kind of important to be looking at that too, because that's going to inform how you do things. Really quickly, and I wrote something back, but um, you know, a couple of people have written in and said now they're interested in ABA, but is there an age that's too late? Someone said, is six years old too late? Um, I, I said no. It's just different. It's just different when you start at six than three because you're going to start in different places and work on different things. But yeah. it's not too late. Olympic athletes use ABA. Yeah. Um, so right. it's a teaching method, and and so not too late. We're out of time. I don't even know how that happens, Dr. Grampiche. But you've been answering questions on Ask Dr. Green that we don't uh, on TikTok that we don't get to. So if any of you are interested and you want more, head on over to Ask Dr. Doreen on TikTok 
We're, are, are we having you next week live, Dr. Grand Pichet? It's the first week in April. Between now and then, we're, we're going to start moving into our new studio, and we're very excited about that. But I just want to say that someone may or may not be having a birthday coming up very soon um, mm-hmm. in the very beginning of April. So if anybody, uh, you guys have a week, if you want to send in uh, birthday messages for Dr. Grampuchet, yeah, that's so kind. I, would, yeah. I would be happy to ferry them to her. If any of you wish to wish her a happy birthday, we would be happy to devote some time to that. I'm sorry that we didn't get to all the questions, but uh, make sure that you're here with us tomorrow. We've got an amazing, we were talking about helping parents. We've got an amazing coach for parents to help them to deal with some of the feelings that's going to be with us tomorrow. So that should be very interesting. Uh, And then on Thursday with Nancy Allspot Jackson for Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, we have an autism dad. We don't have enough of those, right? Who's written a new book um, uh, talking about what that is like called Apollo autism. So I can't wait to learn more about that. So all of that coming up, but we're done for today. So until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too as well. Bye-bye for now. Bye, everyone. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.